Chapter 11.3 of the 9-11 Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The 9-11 Commission Report. Chapter 11.3. Capabilities. Earlier chapters describe in detail the actions decided on by the Clinton and Bush administrations. Each president considered or authorized covert actions, a process that consumed considerable time, especially in the Clinton administration, and achieved little success beyond the collection of intelligence. After the August 1998 missile strikes in Afghanistan, naval vessels remained on station in or near the region, prepared to fire cruise missiles. General Hugh Shelton developed as many as 13 different strike options and did not recommend any of them. The most extended debate on counterterrorism in the Bush administration before 9-11 had to do with missions for the unmanned predator, whether to use it just to locate bin Laden or to wait until it was armed with a missile so that it could find him and also attack him. Looking back, we are struck with the narrow and unimaginative menu of options for action offered to both President Clinton and President Bush. Before 9-11, the United States tried to solve the Al-Qaeda problem with the same government institutions and capabilities it had used in the last stages of the Cold War in its immediate aftermath. These capabilities were insufficient, but little was done to expand or reform them. For covert action, of course, the White House depended on the Counterterrorist Center and the CIA's Directorate of Operations. Though some officers, particularly in the bin Laden unit, were eager for the mission, most were not. The higher management of the Directorate was unenthusiastic. The CIA's capacity to conduct paramilitary operations with its own personnel was not large, and the agency did not seek a large-scale general expansion of these capabilities before 9-11. James Pavitt, the head of this directorate, remembered that covert action, promoted by the White House, had gotten the clandestine service into trouble in the past. He had no desire to see this happen again. He thought, not unreasonably, that a truly serious counterterrorism campaign against an enemy of this magnitude would be business primarily for the military, not the clandestine service. As for the Department of Defense, some officers in the Joint Staff were keen to help. Some in the Special Operations Command have told us that they worked on plans for using Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan and that they hoped for action orders. JCS Chairman General Shelton and General Anthony Zini at Central Command had a different view. Shelton felt that the August 1998 attacks had proved a waste of good ordnance and thereafter consistently opposed firing expensive Tomahawk missiles merely at Jungle Jim terrorist training infrastructure. In this view, he had complete support from Defense Secretary William Cohen. Shelton was prepared to plan other options, but he was also prepared to make perfectly clear his own strong doubts about the wisdom of any military action that risked U.S. lives unless the intelligence was actionable. The high price of keeping counterterrorism policy within the restricted circle of the counterterrorism security group and the highest level principles was nowhere more apparent than in the military establishment. After the August 1998 missile strike, 
other members of the JCS let the press know their unhappiness that, in conformity with the Goldwater-Nichols reforms, Shelton had been the only member of the JCS to be consulted. Although follow-on military options were briefed more widely, the Vice Director of Operations on the Joint Staff commented to us that intelligence and planning documents relating to Al-Qaeda arrived in a Ziploc red package, and that many flag and general officers never had the clearances to see its contents. At no point before 9-11 was the Department of Defense fully engaged in the mission of countering Al-Qaeda, though this was perhaps the most dangerous foreign enemy then threatening the United States. The Clinton administration effectively relied on the CIA to take the lead in preparing long-term offensive plans against an enemy sanctuary. The Bush administration adopted this approach, although its emerging new strategy envisioned some yet undefined further role for the military in addressing the problem. Within defense, both Secretary Cohen and Secretary Donald Rumsfeld gave their principal attention to other challenges. America's homeland defenders faced outward. NORAD itself was barely able to retain any alert bases. Its planning scenarios occasionally considered the danger of hijacked aircraft being guided to American targets, but only aircraft that were coming from overseas. We recognized that a costly change in NORAD's defense posture to deal with the danger of suicide hijackers before such a threat had ever actually been realized would have been a tough sell. But NORAD did not canvass available intelligence and try to make the case. The most serious weaknesses in agency capabilities were in the domestic arena. In Chapter 3 we discussed these institutions, the FBI, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the FAA, and others. The major pre-9-11 effort to strengthen domestic agency capabilities came in 2000 as part of a Millennium After Action review. President Clinton and his principal advisors paid considerable attention then to border security problems but were not able to bring about significant improvements before leaving office. The NSC-led interagency process did not effectively bring along the leadership of the Justice and Transportation Departments in an agenda for institutional change. The FBI did not have the capability to link the collective knowledge of agents in the field to national priorities. The acting director of the FBI did not learn of his bureau's hunt for two possible al-Qaeda operatives in the United States or about his bureau's arrest of an Islamic extremist taking flight training until September 11th. The director of Central Intelligence knew about the FBI's Musawi investigation weeks before word of it made its way even to the FBI's own assistant director for counterterrorism. Other agencies deferred to the FBI. In the August 6 PDB, reporting to President Bush, of 70 full-field investigations related to al-Qaeda, news the president said he found heartening, the CIA had simply restated what the FBI had said. No one looked behind the curtain. The FAA's capabilities to take aggressive, anticipatory security measures were especially weak. Any serious policy examination of a suicide hijacking scenario, critiquing each of the layers of the security system, could have suggested changes to fix glaring vulnerabilities, expanding no-fly lists, searching passengers identified by the CAPS screening system, deploying federal air marshals domestically, hardening cockpit doors, alerting air crew to a different kind of hijacking than what they had been trained to expect, or adjusting the training of controllers and managers in the FAA and NORAD. 
Government agencies also sometimes display a tendency to match capabilities to mission by defining away the hardest part of their job. They are often passive, accepting what are viewed as givens, including that efforts to identify and fix glaring vulnerabilities to dangerous threats would be too costly, too controversial, or too disruptive. End of chapter 11.3 Recording by Leanne Howlett